I'm pretty happy just kind of like hopping straight off in. Like obviously last time we got to chat a lot about the, 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 the weight loss side of things. This time I'm really excited to talk about getting big, getting strong on the vertical diet. That's what we're here for. We love our strength sports. How are we doing it, Stan? How is it different from the, the, the weight loss to the weight gain side things? We talked about losing weight on the vertical diet. And it's just as important for gaining weight that you employ, I think, the right strategy. And the vertical diets obviously worked well for that, for, for me and myself. I've worked with a lot of pro strong men and, and bodybuilders and power lifters. And I'm all about you know packing on the mass, but I want to pack on good weight. When Hofthor came to me, it's been, it's been almost four years ago now, he said, I'm getting fatter, I'm not getting stronger. And I immediately knew that we were ha having a problem with nutrient partitioning, that he was insulin resistant and he was uh, partitioning the foods that he was eating into fat, fat storage and not into muscle. Okay. And that's easy to do. When you put on too much body fat, you know, it changes the manner in which you store and absorb those nutrients. So when I work with an athlete that's trying to gain weight, the first thing I have to determine is, are they insulin sensitive? Are they lean enough? Uh, or are they, I don't want to say use the word healthy enough, but uh, just the fact of the matter is, is that if you're carrying too much body fat, you'll tend to store nutrients as fat. Uh, uh, we call nutrient partitioning. <clears throat> it usually precipitated by some fatty liver disease, uh, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, it's just too much sugars, elevated triglycerides, high fasted glucose, high insulin levels, and the body's just working too hard to get those blood sugars out of the bloodstream. So it's just shoving them all into fat storage, which is the easiest and most abundant place to put them. Uh, you can only hold so much you know, glucose in the form of glycogen in your liver and in your muscles, maybe 100 grams in the liver and maybe three or 400 grams in the muscles. And you'll probably be consuming, you know, for most of these people, 600 to 1,000 grams of carbs a day to, to gain mass. Now, I have to qualify that by saying just the process of eating a whole bunch of extra calories isn't going to put on muscle. Uh, I think everybody knows that, that the workload drives the process. And so when I recommend a, a, a calorie surplus, I also recommend an increase in volume, particularly hypertrophy training seems to be most beneficial. I cycle the, the training stimulus based on, you know, the athlete's uh, schedule. So even with like a hop Thor, if he, he's getting ready for a, a strongman competition that's five months away, I might put in two months of higher volume work while we're trying to pack on muscle and, and wait uh, because and the, I can get more of a hypertrophy response. Like, are, are, are you changing the way that you do things? Are you cycling carbohydrates differently to go along with the increased hypertrophy? Is there anything different that sort of things? Yes. Yep, that's the that's the point, is I'm driving carbohydrates. And I can't just throw a ton of carbohydrates at an athlete. Particularly, you know, power lifters way overestimate the amount of work that they do. <laughs> They're in there, you know, with their, their 10 or 15 minute rest periods, and they might do six sets in an hour. Um, and then they want to gorge on, you know, pizzas and, and tons of carbs and it doesn't work that way. So, uh, you can see from that example that when I'm throwing carbs at someone, I'm also recommending that they utilize a little higher volume and frequency style of training to, so that we can, uh, you know, optimize hypertrophy and then transition into the power, uh, to the strength phase. People think that I, I, you know, bodybuilded and powerlifted, uh, you know, simultaneously, but I didn't. You know, when, when I was bodybuilding, I was bodybuilding. And when I was powerlifting, I was powerlifting. Uh, the fact that I used both throughout the season, you know, two or three months of one, then followed by two or three months of the other, uh, is what allowed me to make the lean gains and then convert that into, you know, improved strength. Uh, a bigger muscle can be a stronger muscle when trained uh, effectively, you know. So this is kind of the same way that Eddie Cohn trained all throughout his 25-year career. He, he competed competed in powerlifting twice a year. And in the off season, he did a hypertrophy uh, block where he would train with higher repetitions and a, a larger variety of exercises and, uh, and pack on more muscle. He went from 165 pounds in his first powerlifting meet to a 242 pounder uh, towards the, the latter part of his career. 
And I was much the same way. I was 158 pounds in my first bodybuilding show back in 1986. And I worked my way up to damn near 300 pounds by 1995. Um, but I did that by cycling. I didn't just eat as much as I could, as long as I could, getting as fat as I could. I was bulking up for, for powerlifting, and I was cutting down for bodybuilding. And I think I was uh, probably going a little more extreme than I would recommend for most of my strength athletes in, in terms of the dieting portion. But that does lend itself to this, what I call kind of a periodization of your body. We're all familiar with periodizing your, your weight training. Uh, you know, so that you can you can take a little uh, ramp up into your strength phases, and you can protect your joints and and not uh, you know uh, create too much fatigue and stress and injury potential. I believe the same thing is true in terms of periodizing your body weight for the the same reason that we started off discussing, because it allows you to resensitize your body to uh, glycogen in particular, for to glucose in particular. I'm a firm believer that uh, you know you need adequate protein to build muscle, but uh, any additional protein probably isn't going to build you any additional muscle. You need adequate amounts of body fat or of fats in your diet uh, for uh, obviously for the vitamins uh, and the minerals they provide. Uh, you know for for optimal health, uh, every cell in the body has a fatty you know membrane, a bilipid layer. Uh, that, that helps transport nutrients into the cell. So you need adequate fat. But more fats doesn't make you stronger. The carbohydrates, I believe, are uh, the macronutrient that is most likely to give you that competitive advantage. Uh, because, probably because, mostly because of its effect on insulin levels, which can be very anabolic and can shuttle nutrients very quickly because of the glycogen storage in the muscles, which is optimal, not just for performance in terms of anaerobic uh, type lifting exercises, but also in terms of recovery for reducing muscle protein breakdown. So uh, I believe can, uh, carbohydrates are anabolic. I think that's kind of the game changer. Most people are gonna get adequate protein. Everybody's gonna get some fats in their diet just from getting adequate protein, assuming they're eating whole foods. It's gonna be in the meat, it's gonna be in the eggs, it's gonna be in the dairy. You know, it's going to be in all the foods that you eat. Uh, but the carbs is the game changer. And this is for performance. You know, I know there's a lot of folks out there that talk about dieting on keto and uh, long-term health and ketones. And that's a whole different conversation uh, that, yeah. that people want to have that conversation. But, uh, you know, we, we discussed weight loss and, and, you know, how that was just a strategy. Ketosis was just a strategy for weight loss in terms of compliance and possibly appetite. But for weight gain for muscle gain, for performance. Uh, <clears throat> I'm actually trying to keep on the lower end so I can create more room for carbohydrates. You're going to fuel the workouts and help with all of the, the benefits that I did mention in terms of their kind of anabolic benefits. Uh, <clears throat> so I mean carbs. So I've got proteins that may be a gram per pound. <clears throat> and I, the caveat to that is if you're a hard gainer, I might actually reduce your protein. Now, I know that sounds a little counterintuitive, but I've been through this, and now the research seems to support it. Um, you know, when in the early 80s, when I was trying to gain weight, I was trying to eat as much protein as possible, thinking protein built muscle. And what protein does is it, is it, it increases the thermic effect of food, and it, and it satiates you, so it's really hard to eat enough. And it kind of, I say it, it cranks up your hamster wheel. It actually increases your metabolism uh, to such a degree that, uh, that you can't gain weight. I was trying to eat two grams of protein per pound of body weight when I was 18, and I couldn't gain weight for the life of me. And they've done the, now they've done the protein overfeeding studies. Uh, the International Society of Sports Nutrition, uh, uh, Dr. Jose Antonio, has lots of research on this. If you want somebody to lose weight, you feed them as much protein as, as possible. It's satiating, has a high thermic effect of food. It seems to uh, increase their, their body temperature, uh, all of those things. And it's really hard to overeat yeah. that much. So by the same token, when I'm trying to bulk up uh, you know, a lean individual, a hard gainer, uh, I'll actually bring their protein intake down a little bit so that they have more appetite and I could throw more uh, uh, carbohydrates at them. 
I don't throw a lot of fats at them either for all the reasons we just discussed. They can be pretty satiating. You eat a big pizza or a big cheeseburger, bacon cheeseburger, and you're full for like six hours. And I want to hit the body more frequently. I want to get you a meal in about every three or four hours. I used to say every two, but the research now suggests that you, you don't get uh, the muscle protein synthesis unless you respect the refractory period, which, whereby once you stimulate muscle protein synthesis, you need about three hours uh, for that to resensitize before it'll spike again. So uh, now the caveat being that calories are king. And if you, you know, ate at eight o'clock and you're, you haven't gotten enough calories in for the day and it's 10 p.m. and you got to get another meal in before you go to bed, that's fine. I'm not going to look at muscle protein synthesis as being a limiting factor. I'm going to look at calories uh, overall as being a limiting factor. That's, that, that's the, uh, <clears throat> you know, that range of calories are king. Uh, and I say this from the get-go, uh, even though I'm very specific about about the types of foods that I want people to eat to optimize performance, I realize at the end of the day that if you eat the best foods in the world but don't eat enough of them, you're not gaining weight. If you're not at a calorie surplus, you're not going to be growing over time. So I've been in the position oftentimes where I've told people just to pack PB&Js in their backpack, you know, students at school, uh, college football players. Uh, I was the same way. I would have a backpack full of food instead of books when I went to college and I would sit in my classes and eat. And that was, that was my, that was my primary goal was to gain weight. And so, uh, that's one of the things I do best with my athletes now is solve those kinds of problems, the logistics surrounding getting enough food, having what you need when you need it. And a lot of people may have seen my videos about my traveling where I use my thermos and I pack my frozen meals and I stay at a hotel with a microwave and I just make sure that I have what I need when I need it. And if I'm sitting on a long flight, reach into my my little bag under the seat and I pull out a, a 24 ounce thermos with a thousand calories of monster mash and I start shoveling away and that you know that's how I've lived my life since I was in college I ate on a clock you know every three hours I was I had my timer set and I was eating Hawthorne does much the same doesn't matter where he is or what he's doing in the middle of a shoot you know at a movie uh, uh, shoot uh, on set <clears throat> and if it's time for him to eat he'll he'll walk over and grab his thermos and stand there and eat his thousand calories incredibly disciplined that way so calories reign supreme uh being uh i think organized meal prepping uh you know the thermos has certainly been a life changer in that regard and i don't make any money saying that you know you just are 20 bucks on amazon and it's you, when you leave the house in the morning you if you're not going to be back until evening you should have a couple of those you know if you're a busy dad and your goal is to gain weight you know then and you got to go pick the kids up at school and you got to take them to uh, soccer practice or whatever, you don't want to be missing your meals. It's a small that, investment you know, in the grand scheme of things, though, got, isn't it? Like what you're going to get out of it for 20 bucks. I mean, the the accessibility, the functionality yeah. of it, it's just, it it blows itself out of the water every single time. It's it's, it's a well worthwhile investment. And I think, you know, you're, you're, you're bang on what you're saying there. It's just, it allows you to be so rigid with everything. And, you know, like you're saying, half thought probably one of the busiest guys in the world between doing movie stuff training seeing family all of the press all the social media stuff all of the stuff in the background that we don't see it's like okay if a guy like that can do it there's literally no excuse why why you know average joe down the down the road can't do it and i think that's what that's that's something that i really really enjoy yeah you just got to be a little uh, better at planning the, the, what I, you know, I've said the logistics. If you're traveling somewhere, it's a lot of what I did for Sean Thor was I just, uh, you know, coordinated with them when they had trips, and so they could <clears throat> have the meals that they needed. And and you know, I would go to the Arnold or the World's Strongest Man a week out, a week before the competition, and I would, you know, go all do all the grocery shopping and get them refrigerators and rice cookers and all that stuff if they needed it, you know, depending on whether or not they stayed in a hotel that had those accommodations or they stayed in an Airbnb with the kitchen. So we just made sure that we planned ahead. If I thought there was something more important than that, I'd be doing it. But I don't think that there is. Calories are king. And so I make sure that they have what they need when they need it. And the kinds of foods that they're used to eating, you know, yeah. you know if they start stuffing themselves full of room service pizza and airport, you know, cheeseburgers and stuff they're going to feel like shit and they might and even end up getting a for like an international athlete like that that must be such a common occurrence you know if you you have to go around you do these expos i'm yeah. sure you probably see it you walk through the restaurant in the morning and you're going to have 15 to 20 of the athletes that are sat around there that are having a breakfast that you know maybe they wouldn't have at home 
they're stuffing themselves full of these foreign foods that they have no idea what like the GI stress is going to be caused by it. They have no idea how long it's going to take to process. And they don't know what the effect it's then going to have on them when they then maybe go up to, you know, their warm-up area or they're going out for an event or what have you. It's It seems so ludicrous when you say it like that to kind of go through this process that you spent, you know, the, the, the best part of half a year peeking up to an event to then get there the week before and just throw everything out of the window and start doing things that, that you wouldn't normally do. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And we see it all the time with powerlifters. They get to a powerlifting meet and they weigh in and they turn right around, they open up their bag and it's just uh, just a, a grab bag of garbage. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just the most ridiculous food. Or they run over to IHOP and just start jamming down loads of pancakes and, and crap that it just, it doesn't sit well. I've, you know, I've told the story about when I was helping Larry Wheels at a competition, I got him to weigh-ins and he lost a significant amount of weight to make weigh-ins. And then I had recommended, I have a very specific um, refeed protocol in the Vertical Diet ebook, And it's very specific for a reason, because if you don't give the body what it needs and that after depleting it like that, uh, you're going to create a lot of GI distress and you're going to have some some problems with uh, uh, maybe even stimulating too much urination and you can start losing water instead of gaining it. Um, <clears throat> all those things are a problem. But uh, Larry decided to go to IHOP right after weigh-ins, you know, much to my chagrin. It wasn't consistent with the method, you know, what I had told him to do. And uh, sure enough, he ended up cramping up at that meat so bad that he almost had to drop out. I had to intervene and, and start to uh, load him with sodium and, uh, you know, try and get him uh, rehydrated because he was cramping Jesus. so bad. So and I've experienced it myself. That's, you know, not throwing stones here. Uh, I've experienced the same thing when you get in there and you start trying to carp up on a bunch of Gatorade and sugar and <clears throat> next thing you know, you're not holding on to the weight and your body starts stimulating the kidneys to release the water and you're pissing like a racehorse and you're losing, you know, valuable that's electrolytes. And you start every single comp and day, man. As well. That's me every single day. <clears throat> that along yeah. with the nerves, it's like, so it's interesting that you say <clears throat> that because, you know, I mean, this is all a learning process for, for me as well. So very, very interesting that you say that because it's like, yeah, what, what, when I go to competitions, I haven't been pre prepared in the past and I have had to kind of eat, eat the stuff that's around and you've just noticed the difference. There is a massive, massive difference. So I, uh, I'm, I'm interested 100%. to, to get into the thought process of ramping up to, to an event. So let, I mean, let's, let's talk about, I mean, Thor, he's such, such, such a fantastic figurehead to talk about right now in terms of like ramping up to, to, to a big competition what are you doing in terms of are you are you cycling any carbohydrates are you trying to slowly increase are you pushing up what are you doing kind of the the few days before the night before are you loading anything extra are you doing anything extra on comp day or is it just nice and plain sailing the whole way through how do you like to run it <clears throat> i keep it pretty steady and here's one of the reasons is that your workload declines the week prior so if you eat the same amount of food, you're actually in, a, in more of a surplus because you have less energy expenditure during that week. So the idea that you would dramatically increase your food intake the last five days when you've dramatically decreased your energy expenditure, your workload, uh, doesn't make sense. You're already going to be at, a, at an increased surplus. And I don't want to create any, any unneeded stress on the body. So if I make any adjustments, it might be 20% more. Uh, it kind of depends on the athlete. Somebody who's doing, you know, has significant endurance uh, demands might increase their carbohydrate intake the last 72 hours, certainly not the last 20. Uh, the glycogen loading should be done over a three-day period, not just the night before. the. Uh, and that would be for people who have that kind of demand. Powerlifters just don't need that, you know, that amount of, of glycogen loading unless they're recovering from a weight cut, like we mentioned, and then it'll be a lot of sodium, a lot of water and a lot of carbs. The big thing is I don't feed them anything they haven't already been eating for at least the last 30 days. I don't introduce any new foods. That's a huge problem with people. They run out to the grocery store and start picking up this grab bag of crap that they haven't normally eaten, the, the donuts and the, and the restaurants and all of that, and the vegetable oils that they put in all your food at those restaurants. Then, you know, not only do you feel like shit and you got that brain fog and, you you know, and your stomach's all distressed, 
But then you get up there and you, you don't know if you're going to be able to, if a fart's going to become a shark all of a sudden when you're on the platform <laughs> yeah. and you're starting to, you know. You don't want to have even the air of portion if you're going for a max lift. You don't, you don't even want that thought to be cropping up into your head, man. No, no. And that's really important that I keep them steady like that. I might throw in a little extra uh, sodium and water the last 24 hours, uh, particularly if it's going to be an event in a, in a warm environment. And then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving them salt kind of throughout the day, not in any huge bolus. But I just make sure that they're salting their foods. Uh, you know, on the refeed, I also, as soon as they step off the scale and I start giving them, I, I start with shakes. I start with uh, a little uh, dextrose, fructose, maybe some essential amino acids, a little bit of sodium, some water. And 30 minutes later, I'll do the same. Maybe some uh, digestive enzymes. I don't want to throw food at them right away after such a huge deplete. And then I'm mostly driving carbohydrates. And I'm, I'm but they'll eat about every, they'll take the drink about every 30 minutes for the first hour and a half to two hours. And then about every two hours after that, they'll be eating meals all day. And after each meal, I have them take a 10 minute walk. We're right back to the nutrient partitioning. We're right back to getting the muscles to absorb everything as opposed to a huge giant IHOP meal in your stomach that's just sitting there churning away and not ending up in, you know, in the right place. Uh, so, my goal, you know, is always to keep their body using the nutrients in the most optimal way. It's kind of where we started in terms of insulin sensitivity. If I've got a really big, heavy athlete, I try and drop enough weight off of them, like we did with Hofthor, who was 435 pounds when I met him. I brought him down to 395. And uh, we did his blood tests and, and saw that he had improved insulin levels, improved fasting glucose, improved HA1C. Uh, so then when I started bulking him back up, we implemented the 10 minute uh, walks or the 10 minute bike. He had a recumbent bike or a stationary bike in his garage after every meal. And he was really disciplined about this. So he would eat a big meal and then he would go do a 10 minute bike or a 10 minute walk. And that helps partition the nutrients. It helps with uh, to decrease uh, the amount of blood sugar that's in the blood. The muscles will absorb glucose from the bloodstream without the need of insulin uh, when you use them. Uh, so that's one of the, the big reasons why I use them so frequently. It's twice as effective as metformin for shuttling nutrients into the muscle for glycogen and glucose in particular. And that's studied. That's not something I made up. Uh, that, that's been shown that, that, uh, uh people who are pre-diabetic can are, are twice as likely to not advance the disease or to, uh, uh, improve the disease when they take, uh, do regular exercise throughout the day, as opposed to taking, uh, uh, the metformin medication twice as effective, which is huge because I think you know some people might be familiar with the fact that metformin is commonly used in performance enhancing circles with the supposition that it increases insulin sensitivity. Uh, it's kind of an aside, but I don't believe that that's the case. Uh, I think that it impairs glucose absorption. Um, it clearly does does that in the the small intestine and it clearly does that in the liver by preventing breakdown of of, uh, of uh, glycogen from the liver. Uh, there may be some minor benefit at the cell site for uptake, but it, it seems that the detrimental effects are, are would exceed that. If you're an athlete that's insulin sensitive, that's healthy, that's doing the 10 minute walks, it's doing a, a relative significant amount of, of hypertrophy volume, uh, you don't want to in, impede glucose absorption. I think it's the same thing with uh, apple cider vinegar. Its mechanism of action is to, to decrease uh, glucose absorption in the small intestine. That sounds counterintuitive for an athlete who's trying to drive carbohydrates for performance. So maybe that's a weight loss benefit. You know, maybe it's good for diabetics, but I don't recommend it for athletes. Uh, there, there are some, <clears throat> some gurus that, um, that might recommend it with a whole host of other performance-enhancing drugs to offset some of the the adverse effects, but I, I just don't see the sense in taking something that you have to take something else uh, to improve its benefits or to counteract well, that's when you get into its, this its adverse like effects. Cocktail area, don't you? And I think that's when things, especially, and I mean, you've probably seen it in, in the bodybuilding world thousands of times. That's when you really start to get into kind of dangerous territory when when you're taking things because you're trying to counteract the effects of other things. It's it's a very slippery slope that you yep. can get get caught into. So. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's 
fantastic that, that that you bring up that point because it's this whole thing of people trying to find the the competitive edge with these things but instead going to the furthest extreme of you know wanting to literally take something out of the bottle and get it into your system rather than doing something as simple as taking a 10 minute walk off after some food and i think for, for someone like yourself who's had such a long career successful career in both having a, a, a very fantastic physique and being strong as fuck it just goes to show that these things work and i think you know if people start implementing these small changes i mean what's what's 30 minutes worth of walk, walking a day it's absolutely nothing is it, in the grand scheme of things i think it's it's, it's a fantastic way that the people can just start bringing a little bit more Oh, I, I don't want to say like health into their lifestyle, but it's it's a small change that has such a profound effect. That's what I love about it. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I do. I you know once you start getting metabolic syndrome, fatty liver disease, you know, uh, high blood sugars and the like, you're just your performance is going to decline. Uh, you're just not going to continue to be able to gain, and so that's why I have people diet down. It's it's not a cosmetic thing. It's not for appearance. It's for performance and. Uh, it's only health in so much as it benefits the the outcome, uh, and I'm I, you know I'm honest about that because if if there's something that's unhealthy but it improves your performance, that's a decision that the athlete will make, and I've made made that decision many times, and I'm typically looking at performance improvement, and I'll just you know suck it up for that whatever short period of time that is yeah. that I have to endure the adverse effects. I'm uh, I'm I'm sensitive to that. I'm not preaching here. Uh, I'm somebody who put himself through hell for many many years, for decades. <clears throat> but I had the benefit of competing in both bodybuilding and powerlifting, <clears throat> and the dieting down and the increased volume and frequency and all that was complementary to powerlifting. It increased my work capacity. Obviously, it made me more well-rounded in terms of of my <clears throat> muscle balance, and uh, so I didn't have the weak points. Uh, and it and it gave me the conditioning. Uh, I think Klokov talked about this. His dad always made him do a lot of conditioning in the office. And he said his strength would go down and it would be really frustrating. And I remember the same thing. My strength would just tank when I was getting ready for bodybuilding show. It was discouraging. Try and hold on to it as long as possible and as much as possible because I, I think that strength is directly relative to retention of lean body mass, which is why I wasn't a fan of keto diets because I tended to lose too much muscle and strength uh, on those diets. I needed the carbohydrates to fuel the workload. Uh, and if, if my performance in the gym was, was starting to suffer, then my ability to hold on to lean body mass, the signal wasn't there. Uh, so the muscles would shrink. Keto worked better, I think, for people who had a lot of muscle to spare than it did for people like me who were pretty lean, uh, who we might call an ectomorph. Uh, I would chew up my muscle pretty quickly without carbohydrates. So uh, so I think that's a pretty important consideration. One of the big things that I look at after setting up my protein, carbs, and fats uh, is, is appetite. The hardest thing about gaining weight is eating enough food often enough and not just getting completely overwhelmed by the process. And you see that all the time when these guys will do a day of eating, how laborious it is. It's a lot of work. And most of the time when I get a hold of a, a, a strength athlete or a guy like Hofthor and Shaw, um, they're tired from eating and they're just exhausted. And so I design a diet that's a little easier to eat. And I have a, a video that I did on, on gaining size. Uh, I think it was like 14 tips for improving your appetite or something. It was a, a rant that I did. And there's some key things that I do um, by keeping the fats low and reducing the proteins a little bit. Uh, it helps free up a little more appetite. And then the kinds of carbs that I eat are important. I can't stuff giant amounts of pizza, pasta, and pancakes into an athlete and expect them to be able to digest it and to, for their stomach to be comfortable. Uh, you know, you eat a big mountain of spaghetti and you're bloated for hours. Yeah, go and try uh, dead. You, know, you just want to go lay down and fall asleep. Not going to happen. Right. And I feel the same way about bread. Not that bread is inherently bad for you, but the more of it you eat, and it has kind of a cumulative effect. You know, you might be able to have a sandwich for, for lunch, but then when you have one for late lunch, and then by the time you throw a dinner on there that's also 
you know, a sandwich. Um, I, I see this happening. People who travel a lot and they end up getting a burger here and a subway there and, you know, a pizza here. And it's just a lot of bread and grains and it, it tends to just accumulate. And after a while, you just can't eat anymore. You're just stuffed and feel kind of miserable in my experience. So I don't use pizza, pasta and pancakes. I don't use grains. I don't use beans and legumes. They're just harder to digest. And, uh, you know, it causes a lot of gas and bloating, and they sit in your stomach for an extended period of time. So I, that's why I use white rice. That's my main carb. Um, I don't use oranges because they're high satiety. I use a little bit of orange juice. It helps increase your appetite. And just a few ounces, three or four ounces with a meal, it seems like you're hungrier faster. It's uh, helps stimulate the liver for thyroid so conversion from... Yeah, it could be every meal, just a few ounces of juice. Okay. Um, or at least three meals a day. I've just found it to be really beneficial. It actually stimulates metabolism. It increases body temperature. The fructose in the liver can do that. Uh, I know that, that people get concerned about high fructose corn syrup and liver fat as a result of sugar. The research is pretty clear that it, it doesn't matter whether it's fructose or glucose or sucrose or maltose. It's the quantity that matters. And so I'm not throwing you know 200 grams of fructose at somebody a day. I, I, I'm yeah. probably around 50 to 100 depending on the size of the athlete which is well within their capacity to metabolize and so long as their workload is is uh, significant enough they're, they're not going to have any problem it's not going to precipitate some sort of uh you know fatty liver that people assume that just because you eat fructose you're you're gonna you know get fatty liver disease but the science is clear i know there's a lot of doctors out there squawking about how fructose is bad for you and uh, you know, calories in excess are bad for you. And fat can be just as bad for your insulin sensitivity as, as sugar or worse. Yeah. You know, it just depends. Are you, are you full? Are your storage, is your storage capacity full? That's when uh, blood sugars go up and insulin goes up. And if your storage capacity isn't full and your workload is, is significant enough to continue to metabolize those foods, then you're, you're going to remain sensitive and be able to, uh, you know, uh, uh, digest and, and utilize those foods. So, uh, and that's a process that's kind of, it, it, as time goes on, you you know eventually in this weight gain game, which is why I say you should periodize your weight gain and weight loss. Eventually, you're going to start to build up some storage capacity problems and and not be able to because you're going to gain a little bit of fat with the muscle. It's obviously ideal to be in a calorie surplus, and you can't gain just muscle. The hope is you can gain more muscle and less fat uh, by you know having a a modest surplus, not jamming down 2,000 extra calories a day. You're not going to gain five pounds of muscle a week. It doesn't work that way. you got to be patient. And, <laughs> oh, man, and if only. Kind of, you know, it'll be huge, right? <laughs> yeah. So a modest surplus, but a consistent surplus. You can't be you know, going up and down based on uh, you know, how tired you are that day of your, your requirements to eat a surplus to gain mass. It's harder than training. The eating is definitely harder than the training. Uh, for, for, for at some point, you want to continue to gain. It becomes really hard to eat enough food. And people think that's ridiculous, but once you've experienced it, you start to understand. I actually prefer dieting. Resisting hunger and force-feeding yourself uh, is two diff completely different problems. And I found it harder to to force feed myself consistently than I did just to distract myself from hunger uh, by, you know, drinking more water or eating a Jolly Rancher or something, you know, I, I had methods and mechanisms in place where I could, I could combat uh, hunger when I was dieting for a show, but there aren't too many methods that you, you have to eat enough calories to grow. You, you just got to knuckle down and do it. So I do create some of these uh, tips and tricks. I mentioned not using high satiety foods. I like uh, a decent amount of potassium. Potato is a huge potassium uh, source. But you have to eat that like before bed or maybe two hours before a workout because they satiate you for a longer period of time. Trying to stuff down tons of potatoes is hard. They fill you up for an extended period of time. So I'm, I pay attention to satiety. Uh, we talked about protein. That's high satiety. Uh, I pay attention to how much, you know, fats I take in for that same reason. And then I'm, I'm pretty much driving white rice. It's the same thing sumo wrestlers do. And you might instantly think to yourself, well, sumo wrestlers are fat. Some of those dudes are the biggest, strongest motherfuckers on the planet. Facts. And 
the 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 easiest way for them to consume enough calories to get as big as they want to get uh, is is white rice. Yeah, there's just no question that that is the game changer. Now, some people have a hard time digesting massive amounts of starches, and and again, we're just trying to create a surplus. It doesn't have to be a two thousand calorie surplus, just a five hundred calorie surplus. Over time, your body will adapt as it does when it diets. And it'll increase the amount of energy expenditure so that calorie surplus is no longer a surplus. So you have to eat a little more. And this continues as you gain more muscle or as you increase your workload. Uh, you're going to have to keep adding another 300 calories about, about every 30 or so days or maybe less in order to continue to grow uh, or you're, you're going to stall and, and, and plateau. So uh, – some people have a hard time digesting that much starch. And what I've discovered, and it was interesting that I saw a video by um, uh, Chris Masterjohn, PhD. He's a great nutritionist, a, a super smart guy, uh, where he talked about the same thing. If you put a little bit of sugar, uh, I use dextrose, on the rice when you eat it, not to drive calories, but to improve your ability to eat more rice because of the the salivary uh, glands uh, you'll just have more saliva uh, it also when you eat uh, carbohydrates you have some amylase production that starts to break down the carbohydrates but that doesn't just happen in the mouth it also happens in the pancreas and some people may not release enough amylase from the pancreas with a starch stimulus but if you add sugar to it the pancreas may release more amylase and help you digest more of those carbohydrates ah, in the small intestine. I've seen Brian Shaw do this for years, but I always just figured so, it was just him trying to get his calories in. That, that was literally it. So it's very interesting that you say that because it makes a lot of sense. That's an important distinction. I don't use the dextrose to drive calories per se. I, I'm not a big fan of putting, it, putting in too much sugar. I, I'm not afraid of some sugar. But I'm, I don't want it to be the primary driver. I do think it, it can have an adverse effect on, on the amount of blood sugars that's uh, immediately released into the bloodstream, which causes a huge insulin spike. Some insulin is great for animals, too much insulin, and now you, you start to create the problem of, of accelerating the fatty liver problem. So now you're storing nutrients as fat as opposed to giving them an opportunity to be shuttled into the muscle. Yeah, they need a little more time, uh, and insulin doesn't wait. So... Uh, <laughs> That's an important distinction. And, I, and it made me think back about, you know, as you learn this stuff over the years, you know, some of it just by trial and error, that some foods are easier to eat than others. And you can eat more frequently and, uh, you know, with some foods than others. Um, I thought about uh, Jay Cutler used to always eat sushi. Uh, I mean, he was just a massive sushi yeah. fan. Well, sushi's sugar rice. And I, people don't realize that, is that sushi is sugar rice. You can eat a whole ton of it. And the proteins are very light, and there's not very much fat in most sushi if it's not deep-fried stuff. So that's why people can go pound a ton of sushi, and bodybuilders love it. It has all those extra benefits. And, and that, that would certainly be an, an option, an alternative, uh, you know, assuming you didn't end up in some – some place where the sushi wasn't uh, cooked right, and then now you get to competition. You got all kinds of you got Montezuma's revenge, and uh, I can't tell you how many times you hear about competitors ending up at competitions, particularly internationally, and then they get diarrhea. I mean, it, it's it just happens so often, and it's unexplainable if you're an athlete at a high level why you weren't drinking bottled water. Why didn't you take your food with you? These kinds of things are controllable. You know, you might not be able to control a flight being delayed. But you can sure as shit control whether or not there's a microwave and a fridge in your room and whether or not you packed a uh, – you know, I take a rolling Coleman cooler with me when I leave the house for more than a week uh, or for a week. I went to NSCA conference last year, and I went to uh, Switzerland, and I went to um, uh, uh, Colombia. Uh, I was – you know, I went to Canada. I, I had a lot of trips where I was gone for at least five days, sometimes up to seven. And I just go down to Walmart and get a 39 – dollar rolling Coleman cooler and I'll pack 30 or 30 little frozen meal prep meals you know I have my own company but you can use anybody's and I have my little vertical uh, world's strongest monster mash I've got 35 of them in there that's five a day for seven days and I just put a strap on it and I throw it onto the uh, check it in at the airplane on my checked luggage 
And when I get off the plane, I go grab my little rolling cooler full of frozen meals and I take it to my hotel room and I've got a fridge and microwave and I'm eating my own food all week long. You know, I've got all the calories that I need and, and I'm not even competing and I do that just because it saves me time. It saves me money. Uh, I feel fantastic. I am training, of course, when I'm on the road, you know, and I, I don't want to, you know, get somewhere and be tired and, and uh, you know, have eaten the wrong meal. And uh, I never eat airport food. I never eat room service. Never. because Well, mainly because as those folks who follow me know that I can't tolerate vegetable oils. It's my trigger. I'm allergic to vegetable oils. It causes gastric distress for me. And some people are like that. And so I'll get diarrhea really bad if I get uh, soybean oil or, or canola oil in my food. And it's in everything. Matter of fact, it's kind of an aside, and I hate to ramble on about it, but you know, my meal prep company orders, uh, you know, the the food supplies from different vendors. When we went to order eggs, what we discovered was uh, that the eggs come in five-gallon buckets. It'd be the same at at, at most restaurants. Uh, they don't actually crack. Most restaurants don't crack their eggs. They have such a high production facility. And 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 yeah. I would say that most, if not all, of the meal prep companies use the five gallon buckets and they ladle it or they you know use large amounts of it and cook massive amounts of eggs at once long story those five gallon buckets are not 100 percent eggs they can be 20 30 percent vegetable oil soybean oil canola oil they cut them they're adulterated with the oil so if you go to say ihop or denny's and you order eggs you're not getting eggs you're getting eggs and vegetable oil even if you tell them not to cook the eggs in vegetable oil, there's already vegetable oil in the eggs. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was, for years, I, I didn't know this. For years, I didn't know this. And I was hit and miss. I would go to restaurants and then, you know, it, it's like again. clockwork. Yeah. I mean, I'll go to a restaurant and then 20 minutes later, all of a sudden, I get this little feeling. And I, I'm, I'm sprinting to the bathroom as fast as I can, you know, the kegel exercise puckering up so i don't you know have an accident on the way it's that bad for me and so of course you know i hate those things and i'm telling everybody they're poison uh but it's like a lot of things if you're not allergic to them maybe you can tolerate you know some or whatever but i don't recommend them i take them out of my diets i i think there's some good information that suggests that it's a it can it can be a contributing factor for fatty liver disease we've seen some some good research to suggest that those vegetable oils may lead to uh, fatty liver disease, something about uh, the oxidation and how you metabolize uh, sugar in the liver uh, under that environment. Uh, okay. I can't pinpoint anything too specific, but there's been some really good um, epidemiological studies in India. They, they studied over one million uh, insurance recipients there uh, from for a health company. And they found that the, the Indians in southern India, uh, in the southern part of the country, didn't eat a lot of vegetable oils and they had a higher uh, fatty liver, like sevenfold, seven times more fatty liver than the Indians in the north who ate more saturated fat. Now, I think some people were saying, well, saturated fat might be protective of uh, fatty liver, uh, especially alcohol uh, fatty liver. But I, I think that it might be that the polyunsaturated fats, the, the vegetable oils, um, rather than saturated fats being protective, it's possible that the polyunsaturated fats uh, created the adverse environment that allowed um, the the fatty liver to form, the triglycerides to elevate, the blood sugars to be metabolized in the liver under that oxidative environment. The specifics escape me. My my uh, co-author is a registered dietitian and exercise phys PhD. We argue about this all the time. He's not willing to take that leap. And, and I, you know, I'm fair to, to say that <laughs> that there's there's some argument as to whether or not I'm right. And I'm not trying to be right necessarily, but I'm, I'm just saying it uh, in a good, better, best scenario. I would just take the precaution to avoid those kinds of things, uh, you know, particularly if you're sensitive to them. It's you know, if you have a peanut allergy, you don't eat peanuts. If you have a lactose intolerance, it really is for me. I, I you know, I just hate to, to generalize, but I just I, I don't see the sense in it and talk refine you know there's a certain uh, nutritive value to it in terms of micronutrients so I, i'm just uh, i i avoid them like the plague I, I think that there's a possibility that that uh, that they can precipitate fatty liver and that's one of the things i'm trying to avoid and i even go so far as like with the hofthors of the world 
to introduce, you know, at least a thousand milligrams of choline a day, which can not only uh, heal but prevent fatty liver disease. Uh, I get that from eggs, about six eggs a day, gives you a thousand milligrams of choline. Very effective. Um, B12, very effective. Of course, that's why I like red meat as well, the iron, the B12, and the zinc, and the selenium. Um, so, you know, all of those things are, are pretty important for, you know, when I'm trying to grow an athlete and get them to gain weight and improve their appetite and improve their, their general health. Uh, uh, that's, it's kind of, I don't know if I hit everything in as much detail as I wanted to, but it's certainly, I detail it out in very specific step-by-step step in, in the vertical diet ebook. And then, uh, you know, I've got some great videos where I talk about fatty liver. I talk about appetite on my rhinos rants. Uh, and have some more tips in there that people can utilize yeah, uh, and to try like you and you, last uh, time be able to gain weight. With Thor, where you know you kind of talk really heavily in depth through through the whole process of the vertical diet and, and kind of all the ins and outs in there. So I'm sure a lot of people can kind of go out there and watch those and kind of gain all of the the necessary information. So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm interested to 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 kind of pop the question to you, Stan. In the strongman world, I mean, I'm not a professional strongman. One day, hopefully, that is the dream, but I'm not quite there yet. In the strongman world, it's very, very common to see, you know, just big, big guys that have not just packed on a ton of muscle, but they're also carrying on a shit ton of fat. It's just this very old school mentality that I think is slowly being kind of dwindled out into today's society. And I think, you know, in 2020, especially, we've seen the biggest transformation of what I like to call actual athletes. Like these guys aren't just looking just humongous. They're lean. They've got definition and they're freaking huge. Do you think that it is going to be of more benefit for those bigger guys to actually you know, take half a season or even take a season out and just try and lose some of that timber because, of course, it, it's difficult. In a strongman scenario, it's that whole kind of, you know, mass moves mass. When you're doing pulling events, pushing events, you're carrying a yoke, you don't want to be sacrificing, uh, like, 20, 30 kilos. It, it makes a big, big difference when you've got 400 kilos pushing down on your spine. You want to be weighing a decent amount to be able to offset that. So, so what do you think needs to happen there? Is this something that they will be able to benefit from? Is it going to interfere too much with their current progress? What do you think? Uh, I think a lot of things. Um, I think it depends on the events. Not all strongman competitions are the same. The Arnold and Dubai are very heavy. Very. Those heavy. guys need a lot of mass. You want to move a huge semi, you need a lot of mass. The, the bigger guys just lean into it. You got to get under a, you know, a, a 1100 pound yoke. You need a lot of mass. It also helps protect the body under those circumstances. Having said that, some of the events uh, have more medleys. They have more reps. Uh, we think of Pujanowski, you know, who performed very well uh, because there were a lot of medleys during his era. Yeah. And when they started going heavier, he started losing. <laughs> uh, you know, he had the benefit, of course, of he had that gas tank, probably EPO derived. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, there's definitely some EPO in there, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tell you, I don't, uh, you know, I don't fault him. You, you do what you got. Uh, so it really depends on the events. And the events might be, say, the Arnold is really, really heavy. World's Strongest Man has more uh endurance events has more medleys uh you saw how well shaw and thor performed at the arnold i think they were first and second place well no shaw tore his hamstring but it was you know the deadlifts were 1030 1050 they were ridiculous then you get to the world's strongest man and they're running in sand so a very different requirement they 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 came to the arnold at 455 pounds they probably should have been 430 at the world's strongest man. They stayed 455, and I think it kind of hurt them. Uh, Shaw perf didn't perform very well in those endurance events, and uh, Thor ultimately injured himself. Although you know he, he probably would have would have won if he hadn't torn his. That, his Brian actually shit. shed a shit ton uh, of weight, right? He realized he was yeah, a bit too but heavy. you look at their physiques. Yep, yep. And, you look at their physiques, though, over the last three years, 
and you notice how much m- muscle they put on their upper bodies, their shoulders, their chest. These guys got huge. Yep. And you look at them just four years ago and they were fatter than they were big. And now they're bigger than they are fat. And a, a lot of that has to do with all the stuff we just discussed. The fact that we, we cycled, we brought them down in weight and brought them back up and brought them back down and brought them back up. And each time you do that, you build more muscle. And I, I took out all of the pizza, pasta, pancakes and just drove the, the rice and the more high quality proteins and, uh, you know, plenty of eggs. And so they were insulin sensitive. Uh, so all of those things, the, the paying attention to the iodine and the salt and all those things, it just created a better environment for growth. Um, I know Shaw, you know, recently. He uh, he got sponsored by Trifecta, so he can't work with me anymore because I have a competing meal prep company. And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he 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 switched diets, but uh, you know, and good for him. That's he's he's a good businessman, and as am I. And I, I never would uh, you know you know discourage him from taking those those opportunities. But some folks were concerned that maybe the vertical diet didn't work for him. And in fact, what happened is is his travel schedule was extraordinary with the. Um, he got bigger, he got stronger, he got healthier, uh, over the last two years that I worked with them. But then he started doing the, um, um, the history channel thing. And then he started getting all these appearance deals. He was flying all over the country and all over the, the world, making appearances. And we knew it, we talked about it a lot, that his schedule was, was just horrendous. And so he, uh, he had a couple of shows where he didn't perform as well as he liked. He was recovering from injuries. Uh, so it was a tough year. And he was also and, one of uh, the. He was probably so, you the, know, he kind of made... the guy that was performing the most out of all of those guys. So like the guys that he was competing with, with like on the History Channel, guys like Eddie Hall, obviously retired. Nick Best is in like the Masters category. He's not getting out quite as much. Obi was yep. already carrying some injuries. So for sure, it's really hard because, of course, you know, he's making that money, he's sacrificing his time, and he wants to entertain. But then also, he's, like you said, like, he's got these big competitions which he needs to be performing for. And when you're not, yeah. you then have to, you know, make that sacrifice to decide what needs to go because you don't, you can't have both, right? Yeah, and you're maxing out every week and you're sleeping <laughs> in a different hotel room, you know, three nights a week and on an airplane and, and eating room service. And, uh, it wasn't optimal. all the things it wasn't you ideal. Hate. It wasn't the way I would design it. All the things I, hate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you think back and it's, you know, it's unfortunate that I, I don't know that there's much that can be done about that except for really to double down on, you know, planning ahead. And, uh, it's, it's hard. There's plenty of research to suggest that just sleeping in a different bed has a dramatic impact on the quality uh, of your sleep. Uh, like when traveling at hotels and stuff. And I experienced it. I've been in 10 countries and 40 states in the last 18 months. I'm on an airplane all the time. And I think I manage it about as well as anybody, but I don't think I could perform at my peak under those, those kinds of circumstances. So uh, we see, anyhow, I just want to, I just wanted some folks to know that, that, uh, that there's some certain, you know, there's some circumstances that are, are harder to control than others. And it's really, uh, you know, just being able to manage the, that, the logistics of that as, as closely as possible. I would communicate with their wives, uh, Hofthors and Shaws, and we would get grocery lists. And I would, uh, like in Manila, I, I hired a, uh, a host to go do all the shopping and have everything at, at their hotel for, uh, you know, I would fly out early if I needed to. We would uh, obviously, you know, do everything we could to manage them getting uh, the same food, enough food, uh, you know, I would work with Hofthor's agent to try and make sure that if he got a booking that maybe he went a day early so he could fly during the day and didn't end up on red eyes and didn't end up, you know, landing at one o'clock in the morning or having to get up at 3 a.m. to get on a flight at five and uh, making sure that the hotel had the facilities that he needed, a, a kitchenette. Um, every time I'm coordinating something with him, I'm, I'm telling him he needs a hotel with a kitchen. I mean, it's just a given. You know, and then I usually have somebody there that whether I have it's non-negotiable. And if I don't have meals waiting at the hotel for them, then I have uh, we've arranged that they can, you know, go to Walmart or Costco and get what they need. And uh, and just to make sure that they're they're on target that way and they carry their thermos with them. And, and that's how they manage that situation. And it's the same if you're a dad with a high school kid that's playing sports, football or that kid should not leave the house in the morning without two thermos in his bag. 
It just doesn't make sense. You would never send that kid out onto the football field without a helmet and shoulder pads. But you send him to school with no food. And, and you know the food at the school, school sucks. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, And these kids, they work so hard. You know, some of them are training doubles, you know, in the football players in, in the spring. Uh, you, you have to throw a lot of food and a lot of sleep at that kind of, of workload. And uh, so, and the coaches all the time, I do lots of seminars for coaches at high schools and they say, man, Stan, if I could just get these kids to eat and sleep, they only get them for an hour or two a day. And then the 22, 23 hours that are left, the kids aren't rebuilding what the coaches are breaking down. And that's the big challenge, I think, is just having the kind of discipline and consistency outside the gym. Training is the easy part. That's the fun part. <laughs> yeah. Everybody loves to go work out. Anybody, you know, anybody that I know that's, that competes in this industry fell in love with it because of the training. The hard part is, is are you eating enough, often enough, consistently enough, and sleeping well enough uh, to rebuild all of the, the muscle that you're breaking down? You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's just it's that in total inclusion of you everything in your environment. And I think that's what I love so much about listening to you and what you have to say with a vertical diet is that you know as as much as it has a title it is it's a lifestyle it's a way to live your life and i think yeah. that the the more people get that into their heads because i mean I, I i see this on a daily basis working as a pt in a gym obviously not at the moment but you you, you know it's it's these these people that just kind of just get hooked onto a, a, a diet but they're not managing all of the other factors Whereas this, I feel it really does in encapsulate all of these different various aspects mm. that have such a huge prevalent effect on, you know, whether you're building muscle or losing weight or gaining weight, you know, whatever it is that you're looking to achieve. And I think that's that's a reason why you've been so successful throughout your career is because you've just controlled your environment. And I think that's a fantastic, fantastic thing to really kind of teach those kids is that if you can control that then you can get the most out of it and if you can teach it to them at that young age then obviously you know we can have the potential of building a foundation over another five six seven years in their youth so that when they get into their kind of mid-20s 30s we are just we have this plethora of freaks walking around that are just able to perform the most incredible feats of strength and i think that's something that we need yeah. to really, really try to and push you know, one of the big reasons I think that, that I've, I've had such good success is because I've lived it. I was the 140-pound kid in college that couldn't bench 135. I bulked myself up to a fat 305 and had <laughs> metabolic syndrome. Yeah, I had, had a little elevated blood pressure there, had some high blood sugars there. And, and then dieted down and bulked up and dieted down and bulked up dozens of times over a 30-year period. And so... I saw what worked, it made me stronger, it made me feel good. I saw what held on to muscle when I dieted, uh, and I tried everything. I tried the Gomad gallon of milk a day, obviously. I tried the pizza pasta pancakes. I tried the keto diets, and uh, I tried the, the two hours of cardio a day. I mean, I've been down all those roads, and I saw how it affected my performance, and I'm kind of unique in the fact that I had over 150 blood tests over the course of my career, and so I also saw how it affected me internally and how those, the results of those blood tests, uh, you know, how I performed under those circumstances and what I did to, to improve those things and to optimize those things. And uh, I think so when I talk to an athlete, whether they're dieting or gaining weight, I've lived it. And so when they say that they, you know, they've got diarrhea or they're having to eat on the toilet or they've you know, just sick of food or, uh, you know, or they feel weak or tired. And I immediately know, uh, you know, how to, how to resolve that, that problem or that, how to help them manage that problem. A hundred percent. And, you know, even now, uh, I respond to 50, 70, sometimes over a hundred DMS, emails and texts a day over the last two years that I've released this vertical diet. And, you know, that's like 50,000 uh, really unique uh, pieces of feedback that I get from people who are experiencing certain things, whether it's constipation or bloating or irritable bowel disease or Crohn's or, 
uh, hyper hypothyroidism, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things, um, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, and they'll tell me about it. And I'll, you know, introduce an intervention and they'll try it and give me feedback. And so, you know, a lot of the things I talk about, uh, you know, I, they're definitely supported in the research and the science. And I've, you know, obviously incorporated the, the academics to support all of this. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I just had so much, uh, you know, practical feedback from people who, you know, these these methods have worked for just in terms of of ease of compliance and comfort in in the process, as opposed to you know being hyper focused on uh, the science all the time. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's really really interesting, and in, you know, we've spoken in in such detail. I think it's it's a fantastic way to finish off. So I, I ask the same question to every single one of my guests, and I'm very very interested yeah. to, to to get your your opinion. So I want you for a second to imagine that you're stepping back into a time machine and you're taking yourself back to when you are, you know, 10, 11, 12 years of age, okay? You're you're at an age where you've got the whole life ahead of you and you get to spend a few moments with your younger self and you get to impart a bit of wisdom, knowledge, a mantra, a way to live your life, some information that's going to help your younger self go through all of the trials and tribulations you know that that young man has ahead of him in his life to get him from where he is there to where you are sat now what do you give them boy that's the if i knew then what i know now i feel like i would have been so much more successful so much earlier in my career because i managed to to step in every pothole along the way and then learned every lesson the hard way sometimes multiple times uh one of the big things i want to talk about because a lot of it seems Oddly enough, my being in my 50s, I still have a lot of young guys, uh, high school kids and, and early 20s that come to me that follow my information. When I was in high school, uh, I worked like the swing shift. I didn't get off work till midnight or sometimes. I'd get home at one o'clock in the morning and you know, then you're up at, at 6.30 in the morning and uh, you're racing to school. And uh, worked at a 7-Eleven. I worked at a bakery. Uh, I was eating shit all the time. I was getting five hours of sleep a night. Uh, you know, I was drinking soda pop and nacho cheese, the, the pump cheese that comes out of the can, you know. Uh, I just had the worst diet on the planet in high school. And I was a wrestler. Uh, and I was also an ectomorph. I was really, really lean. I mean, like scrawny. Like I got in high school, I got the chicken legs award on my soccer team. And it's because I didn't eat and I didn't sleep. And I didn't grow. I was, I was, uh, I wrestled 98 as a freshman, 98 as a sophomore, 106 as a junior. I was only 115 as a senior in high school. And it's because I didn't eat and I didn't sleep. I wasn't getting adequate protein, adequate calories overall. You know, I was eating all these processed foods and soda and sugar. And at the time, I didn't know it, but I used to have really extreme blood sugar fluctuations as a result, eating all the sugar and being that lean. I would get those lightheaded episodes, you know. And I thought there was something wrong with me, but you didn't want to ask anybody, you know, because you're weird. Uh, but I definitely suffered from from uh, hypoglycemia uh, throughout those years because I was doing too much workload and not enough feeding, not enough sleeping. And I didn't grow. Uh, I had uh, uh, I had delayed onset puberty. So it wasn't until my late in my senior year of high school. I went back to Pennsylvania where my uncle uh, owned a farm and I helped uh, work on his farm. And so now I'm eating steaks and bacon and eggs and uh, whole milk that I used to get from the neighbor's dairy farm. It was the kind where you'd have to shake it because there was thick cream on the top of the bottle. So it was like it was like six percent milk. You know, yeah, it was the, it real, was the real deal <laughs> right at, fresh out of the cow. I put on 30 pounds in six months and finally puberty and you ask yourself well was that just your biological clock or did you not give your body the nutrients that it needed so that it would initiate that that process this discourages me when i see high school students kids particularly like wrestlers cutting weight all the time i you should give yourself an opportunity to realize your genetic potential by getting adequate sleep and adequate food so I talk about getting adequate cholesterol, which is important for hormone production, specifically in kids, and getting red meat and getting eggs and getting dairy and uh, eating enough uh, and exercising, obviously, but 
it's huge the sleep and training and i and i know it's a it's a it's so boring to hear me beat on this drum over and over again but i lived it it was very discouraging to be a, a hundred and five pound senior in high school you know i was just the scrawniest little and my brother was 200 pounds he was two years older than me and he would beat the shit out of me and was, <laughs> there's nothing i could do you're like i you just know? wish i was bigger <laughs> for <laughs> Fortunately, they had weight classes in wrestling, so at least I was going up against another scrawny kid, you know, just two little scrawny kids wrestling with each other, 105 pounds. Uh, but if, you know, if I look back now and I say to myself as a 12, uh, I would really pay attention. And I'm actually writing a, another ebook now uh, about um, uh, vertical kids, about optimizing your children's genetic potential. And I think that's huge. And I think that's all that parents want is just to give them an opportunity to be the best that they can be and not to get in their way. And I think kids get in their own way because they don't recognize that, that you don't build muscle in the gym. Uh, you build it at the dinner table and with eating and sleeping outside the gym, like we talked about earlier. And I just want people to give them their opportunity themselves, the opportunity uh, to be the best them they can be. They might not be, seven foot they're not going to be Hofthor they're not going to be Shaq you know uh, but they should give themselves the opportunity to at least reach their genetic potential they'll be healthier along the way obviously at the same time uh, smarter uh, you know we all know that these micronutrient deficiencies manifest themselves many times in in, uh, in decreased uh, cognitive performance uh, we see that with iodine you know it's a really important uh, vitamin D in terms of, of bone uh, growth is, is fortunately now it's supported uh, the whole COVID virus thing. They're talking about how it's beneficial for upper respiratory tract infections and, and the like. And so vitamin D is very important. I could go on and on, but I, I just, you know, give yourself, uh, give your body what it needs so it can give you what you want. Perfect. That's awesome. That, that's, uh, that's exactly, 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 exactly what we need to hear. Thank you so much for coming on board and awesome. doing this, Matt. I'm sure there are a thousand other one things that we can we can talk about. Definitely, when when that ebook launches, I'd love to have you back on because I'm very interested in in helping, you know, young athletes. As someone who started off playing rugby at the age of six, I think it's very important that that we delve into that. So I would love to have you back on at another point to to get into that when that ebook's all out there and and, and in, the, in the world. So thank you so much for joining me, man. I really really appreciate it, and I hope you have a fantastic day. Awesome, brother. Been great talking to you.